Okay, uh, so here we are, starting chapter 3 of Ephesians today. Um, if you have been with us uh, this spring and summer, no? How about now? Better? Okay. Uh, if you've been with us this spring and summer, um, you've been following what, what is stated to be the theme um, of this letter. Um, they say that this is a, a, a circular letter. It is uh, said that it is addressed to the Ephesians um, but it doesn't seem to address anything that's particular to the city of Ephesus. And even though it's um, addressed to the Ephesians, it, the, the assumption that uh, most scholars have is it was actually intended to be passed around city to city, sort of for everybody. Um, and, it, and that would include us. And the theme of it is uh, that God, uh, in, this is in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that God had this plan from the beginning of the world uh, to unite all from even before the beginning of the world, to unite all things together in Christ. Um, and the uniting of all things together in Christ includes and needs to include the uniting of people who have been separated from one another um, by various uh, circumstances. Um, and he has been uh, addressing that particular theme, the uniting of people who have been divided from one another uh, for the last several sermons. Um, and this, he continues that theme. Um, but there is a transition here. Um, just to orient ourselves in the letter. If you look at verse 1, uh, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then there's this dash. Uh, and he seems to interrupt himself. And then everything from verse 2 through verse 13 is like this parentheses. Uh, that uh, describes a little bit of, of why you should care uh, that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles and what that means. And then he begins to pray. Remember that he, uh, at the end of chapter 1 he was praying? He starts to resume that prayer um, and he's telling you why he is praying for us. Um, you, and you notice in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's almost the exact same phrase at the beginning of verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Uh, so everything that's in between there um, is kind of describing um, why you should care and, and what he means that he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of us Gentiles. Um, and in case you don't know, Gentile is just a, a non-Jewish person, a person who is not uh, um, a circumcised and communing member of uh, the Jewish religion. So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of Christ of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written to you briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Um, what he's after here. Um, what he's doing in this passage, uh, the reason that this is here in the, in the book, the reason that it's here in the letter, is he has just been talking about in the, in the previous passage, he's just been talking about the breaking down of the middle wall of partition, right? the, the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And by breaking down that wall, really breaking down all walls. And one of the things he's saying here is that this is a mystery that has been revealed um, and so I'm going to have to be a little bit pedantic 
um, I'm gonna have, we're going to have to talk for a few minutes about what a mystery is and what he means by that word. Uh, now, if I were sitting where you're sitting and I heard that, I'd be like, yes, that's going to be really fun. That's so, that sounds so interesting. Um, that may not be you, uh, but it is very important uh, to understand what this word means in this context. It does not mean what it sounds like in English. I actually wish that translators could come up with a different way uh, of rendering this word from Greek. The Greek word, it seems obvious, the Greek word is mysterion, which sounds a whole lot like the word mystery. It just does not mean what we mean when we say mystery. When we say mystery, there's a couple of things that we might mean in English and modern English. We might mean something like, uh, it's, uh, you know, a, a mystery is a thing that just nobody knows. Nobody knows, nobody's ever going to know. Um, for example, this morning, um, Catherine was trying to find some music uh, papers that she needed this morning, and she looked around for them and looked in various places where she thought they might be and said, have you seen these? And I haven't seen them, and nobody's seen them, and nobody knows where they are. And she said, it's a mystery. Um, and it is. It's a mystery. But it's not what Paul means by a mystery. He doesn't mean a thing that just nobody knows. Um, another thing that people mean by mystery is, is a thing that... that uh, it, it, you know, especially in the context of religion, people often today mean uh, a, a truth or, or an idea that you can't, you can't really get your mind around. You just got to kind of accept it. Uh, it is a, it's a thing that you have to feel rather than know. Um, we often, in, even in the context of Christianity, I think we often misuse uh, the word that way, uh, to describe certain doctrines of Christianity, like the Trinity. We often say that the Trinity is a mystery. And it is a mystery, but it's a mystery the way that Paul means it, not the way that we typically mean it. The, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a thing that you just kind of throw your hands up and go, well, we just accept that this word is, 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 is that God is three in one, and we don't really know anything else. We don't know what that means, um, and we can't really care. We just kind of have to feel it rather than know it. Um, that's not what Paul means by a mystery. Um, he means actually something fairly technical. Um, he doesn't mean something that's unexplainable or something that's secret or something that's hidden. He doesn't, you know, in fact, uh, the, he does use the word enigmatic in other places in the New Testament to mean that thing that I'm talking about, a thing that you just don't, maybe you just don't really know, you can't really get your mind around it. Um, he uses that word, if you're familiar with it, in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, now, that is, that is even now today, uh, we can't fully know God yet. Um, he knows us far better than we know him, he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, for now we only see God as through a mirror, dimly or through a glass darkly, uh, as the, the old King James says. Um, and the Greek word there for dimly or darkly is enigmatically, or we see it in an enigma, is the literal, would be a literal translation of it. Uh, our ability to know God is somewhat in an enigma right now. But then there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to physically return to the earth, he's saying, and then we will see him and know him as he knows us. So there is that idea, but that's not what he's describing here when he's talking about this mystery. What he does mean is this. Uh, a mystery in the context of religion in the Greco-Roman world meant something very particular. Uh, there were religions 
like the Mithraic cults um, and other kinds of, uh, you know, I would say that they, uh, if you're familiar with Manichaean Gnosticism, it would fall in this category. And there were kind of lots of these mystery religions. And a mystery religion uh, was a, a, a religion that you, you, you didn't know a lot about it on the way in. Um, you, you said, okay, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to fall in with these people um, and I'm going to enter into this process that they have. And they're telling me that it's going to make my life better. But I'm not allowed to know really how it works until I'm in. I don't get to know what the prayers are. I don't get to know what the rituals are until I have been initiated. And those rituals and those secret doctrines of those uh, religions were called mysterions. That's what, uh, that was what the word would have uh, described in this day. Uh, it would have described, particularly in the, pro, in the context of a religion, it would have described the rituals and the secret doctrines of one of these mystery religions. Um, and then once you were in one of these religions, there were more mysterions that you could learn later. Um, we actually have kind of some religions that work this way uh, today. Um, Perhaps you're familiar with the Masons. Um, the Masons, they don't even, they, well, they say that they're not a religion, and, and we'll take them at their word, but they, they do function this way. There are a lot of secrets in the Masonic uh, tradition that you and I aren't supposed to know about. Um, in order to learn about them, you have to become a Mason, and then you can learn the first ones. And then as you're a Mason a little longer, you progress through it. You can learn more and more of them. I'm about, yes, Scientology is, is another a perfect example of it. Um, Scientology, you know, this is the one that, that was founded by L. Ron Hubbard, the science fiction author. And their actual doctrine is uh, that trillions of years ago, uh, a spaceship similar to a DC-9 carrying all these creatures from an alien civilization crashed on Earth and the spirits of those aliens were kind of trapped in earth and are clinging to your soul and making psychological problems in your life. This is what Scientology teaches. And then there's a process that you go through to try to be cleared from these thetans, they call them. Um, but you and I aren't supposed to know that. The fact that we know it is tremendously embarrassing to Scientology. They have sued people for... Uh, for telling this secret. You're not supposed to learn this until you are an operating Thetan level three within inside the Church of Scientology. Uh, you're supposed to progress through uh, this secret religion to learn about it. And what Paul is saying here is something very remarkable. He's saying you're familiar with this idea of mysteries. You're familiar with this idea of secret doctrines. You're familiar with this idea of secret rituals. All of them have been revealed now. There are no secret, mysterious, uh, hidden doctrines in Christianity. Jesus said uh, to his accusers when he was on trial, I have done nothing in secret, but I have done everything in the open. You want to know what I have taught? Just ask the people that I have taught, and they will tell you. There are no secret doctrines. We, when we call the doctrine of the Trinity a mystery, we're not saying that you, well, we're not saying this. 
We are not saying that when you have been a Christian long enough and you have progressed through the levels of Christianity, of which there are none, there are no levels of progression in Christianity, uh, then, then maybe you'll be able to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. We're not saying that at all. In fact, I think um, that for a Christian, for most Christians, the doctrine of the Trinity is fairly easy to understand. It's surprising. It's counterintuitive to say that, that God could be one God but three persons. It is contrary to our experience. We've never experienced any other beings who are one being but three persons. And yet, for a Christian, I think that it's, it's fairly uh, easy to grasp that we know that when we pray, uh, that we are praying to a God who is out beyond us, other than us. And we know that when we pray, um, we are only moved to pray because God is within us, empowering us and driving us to pray. And we know that we're only able to even do that because God is also somehow alongside of us, uh, bringing our prayers from God within us to God outside of us. And you have the Trinity at work every time we pray. And I think we experience that. I don't think that it's, it's, that, it's not enigmatic to us. Um, it is a mystery because it is a thing that was counterintuitive, that was hidden, but now has been revealed. If you, if you do a, a little word study, you go to BibleGateway.com and you search for the word mystery in the New Testament. Almost every time that you see the word mystery in the New Testament, you also see the word revealed along with it. Because the mysteries have all been revealed. And that is what Paul is, is getting at here. Uh, the mysteries have been revealed. Uh, Colossians 2, he talks, he's talking about a very similar theme in Colossians 2. Uh, and he says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what he's saying is, um, throughout history, uh, he, says, he says here in uh, uh, in Ephesians 3, he says, This mystery, has, uh, which was not made known to the children of men in times past, as it has now been revealed, uh, is now revealed. Right? So it, it, times past it was hidden, and now it has been revealed, and it has been revealed to everybody. Okay. And centrally, Jesus is that mystery. So here's, what he's, here, here's how I would describe what he's getting at. Um, it's a little bit like the invention of the microscope. Um, 500, 600 years ago, uh, if you wanted to know uh, how disease worked, why did some people get sick and some people don't? Um, sometimes when a person is sick, if you go and you're near them, um, you get sick too. Why is that? Is there a demon inside of them that affects you? Um, is there something in the air that they're breathing um, that infects you too? Uh, or, you know, or uh, is there uh, some you know, humor in their body that's flowing the wrong direction? Nobody knows. But then, at some point, somebody invents a microscope. 
And you can look at the saliva or the other uh, fluids in that person's body, and you can see there are tiny little animals living inside them that are making them sick. And if you get in contact with those tiny little animals, you're going to get sick too. Nobody knew that. And if you had said that 600 years ago, it would have been just as plausible as if it was an evil spirit. You know, can you imagine, you know, five, six hundred years ago telling somebody, you know what I think, I think makes us sick? I think there's tiny little animals. You mean like insects? No, no. Really, really, like you can't see them. So there's tiny little animals that I can't see. But then once you know it, once the microscope has been invented, and you can look and you can see it, suddenly the bubonic plague makes a lot of sense. Uh, suddenly all you know, the ep- ep- epidemics uh, that we know about in history, now they snap into focus. Now we get it. Now we see. Uh, all it took was the revelation of this one thing, the invention of the microscope, to make everything, all of that evidence from the past become clear. And that's what the revelation of Christ has done. Um, he says this, this was uh, not revealed in the past as it is now. So it's not that it was not revealed at all in the past. It's not that there was no evidence for the germ theory of disease in ancient times. But there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough to bring it quite into focus. And suddenly, once you have the microscope, it all makes sense. And now suddenly, once we have seen Jesus, once we have seen this revelation of who God is uh, as made flesh dwelling among us, as a suffering servant who dies for our sins and is raised for our justification, once we see that, suddenly all of this stuff in the Old Testament snaps into focus. In the same way that the bubonic plague snaps into focus because of the microscope, uh, all of these promises in the Old Testament snap into focus because of Jesus. So one of the things that's important here is, is he says, I'm, I, Paul, the prisoner of, of Jesus Christ for your sake. He wants to make sure that you understand that he's not bragging about the information that he has. He's kind of like, why should the people listen to you? Uh, he's saying, it's not because I'm super smart. I just happen to be the dumb mook who got to look into the microscope and go, there's tiny little animals in there. I'm just the guy who, who Jesus appeared to and said, this is how it is. And you go, okay, wow. Now all of, suddenly all of this stuff makes sense. So he's not bragging. Um, in fact, you know that he's not bragging because in verse 8, which we'll look at next week, he, he says that he is the least of all saints. He's like, I'm, I'm not Sherlock Holmes here. He's talking about the insight that you, know, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ in verse 4, but he's also the least of all saints. It's not because he's super intelligent. It's not because uh, he's, this, he's this genius. He just got to look into the microscope. He just got to see Jesus. He just got to see God in the flesh. And that made it all make sense. Okay, so what is, he says, this mystery? So what is this mystery now? Um, you know, I, I think I also want to add before I say that, uh, you know, I saw this old Tom Hanks movie when I was a kid called Turner and Hooch. Um, probably not great. I haven't probably seen it in 30 years, but uh, there was a part in it that stuck out to me uh, that I remembered, which was he's, he's a police detective and he's investigating a murder and there's this woman who's investigating with him that he's trying to impress 
and he's describing how the mur- he's, how the murder weapon was uh, uh, the, the victim was stabbed in the back with a blade penetrated uh, between the ribs at an upward angle, uh, piercing the right lung. Um, and he says they're trained to do this in, spe- in special forces because if you pierce the lung, they can't uh, scream, they can't cry out in pain. Um, and the woman that he's investigating with says, "How did?" Because she's like, "That's not in the report. How did you know that?" And he goes, "He goes, I'm a professional investigator. It's my job to know these things." And then he says, "Besides, I called the coroner and he told me." <laughs> uh, and that's kind of what Paul is saying here. He's like, "I'm not. I didn't figure this out." I just called the coroner and he told me. It was easy. Once you see that Jesus is who he is, the rest snaps into focus. So what is this? So first of all, when the New Testament talks about the mysterion, the mystery is Jesus himself. This is who God is. So back in Colossians 2, he's talking about the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ which is Christ. Christ is that mystery. And not only is Christ that mystery, Christ is the location of all the other mysteries. So he he goes on to say, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom of God. Um, So something like the doctrine of the Trinity, something like the two natures of Jesus Christ in one person, something like the forgiveness of sins are things that are in the Old Testament. They are things that were revealed in times past, but not revealed as they are now, now that we see Jesus. The promise that God is making all things new, the promise that God is making you new, it's in the Old Testament, it's there. But the full understanding of it, the full revelation of it, suddenly becomes clear when we see God in the flesh, laying down his life for us. So, one of the things that is a hidden treasure in the mystery of Christ, in the mysterion of Christ, one of those hidden treasures is that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Uh, How is the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body with the uh, Israelite people, how is that revealed by the coming of Christ? How is that a thing that suddenly becomes clear because Jesus came? How does the mystery of Christ reveal the mystery of reconciliation? To understand that, we have to first explore where this Israelite-Gentile distinction came from in the first place. Why was there ever a Jew-Gentile distinction? Um, When we talk about reconciliation, um, most of the time we are talking about reconciling artificial divisions. We're talking about reconciling divisions that are created uh, by us. We're talking about reconciling divisions that are created uh, because of interpersonal conflict. We're talking about reconciling divisions that are created by sin. We're talking about reconciling divisions that are created by culture. We're talking about reconciling divisions that are created by economics. We're talking about uh, reconciling divisions that are created by social constructs like race and racism. Those, in a sense, don't really exist 
They shouldn't exist. Reconciling them uh, is a matter of taking apart something that shouldn't be there, of eliminating something that shouldn't be there, and bringing people back together the way that they should be. But when we're talking about the Jew-Gentile distinction, that's actually one that in the Bible was created by God. So it's pretty mysterious that God would then undo the distinction that he made Genesis chapter 17. Um, in one of the, this is one of the passages where God is making a covenant with Abraham. Um, and it, it is in that passage that God tells Abraham um, that you are going to be circumcised and all of your descendants after you are going to be circumcised. Um, and that is going to be the mark of distinction between you who are going to be my people and everybody else who are not going to be my people. Those people who are not my people and you who are my people. God is the one who made that distinction. God is the one who said, I'm going to have this, these, this family. This will be my chosen people and not everybody else. God made that distinction. How does the mystery of Christ reveal the mystery that that distinction is now being taken away? Okay. So why did God make that distinction in the first place? And I think that this is where, this is where the mystery came from. This is where uh, the confusion came from in Paul's day. This is why people were confused about this, is because I think that people got the idea, and may still have the idea in some corners, that God uh, made this distinction in order to uh, put down everybody else. To say, this group of people are mine, and everybody else, they are not good enough, and cannot be good enough. Um, however, that's the opposite of what God was doing. And if you look back at chapter of Genesis 17, um, and then all these covenants with Abraham, what God says to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, and then in 18, and then 26, and on and on, what God says is, I'm, I'm choosing you and your family so that all of the nations of the world will be blessed in you. In you. Not just through you, but in you. That my blessing of you is a blessing and will be shown to be a, the blessing of all of the nations of the world. And by bless, bear in mind, he doesn't mean make you financially prosperous. He doesn't mean give you health and wealth. He means give you salvation. He means give you real shalom. He means give you union with God. He means give you God himself to be with you. By separating this group of people, this family, God is enacting this plan to then expand that blessing to everyone. And that's what he was promising way back when he first made the distinction. And I'm making this distinction in order to establish this people through whom I can demonstrate my holiness, I can demonstrate uh, my righteousness, I can demonstrate my ability to forgive sins, I can demonstrate what uh, is required for sins to be forgiven, and then through that people I can myself become a human being and become one of them and become one of all of humanity. And so the selecting of the Jewish people out of the rest of humanity 
was not to leave the rest of humanity behind, was, but was to eventually draw the rest of humanity along. And that is why we read Isaiah chapter 2 this morning. Right? It will come to pass in the latter day that the house, mountain of the Lord's house will be established as, a, uh, as the highest of the mountains and all the nations will flow unto it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion, and this is really, really Interesting, if you know your Old Testament, out of Zion shall go forth the law. As you think about the Old Testament, is that a surprising uh, statement to you? That out of Zion shall go forth the law. Where does the law in the Old Testament, where does the law go out from? What mountain does the law go out from in the Old Testament? Mount Sinai. That's the mountain that God brings the people of Israel to and Moses goes up and he receives the Ten Commandments and all of the law of God. That's where the law, the law of God doesn't go out from Zion. The law of God goes out from Mount Sinai. Mount Zion, this, where Jerusalem is, is actually a really small mountain. It's kind of a hill. And saying that this, this little hill is going to be exalted above all the mountains, including Mount Sinai, where the law originally came from, for the law to be going out from Zion, saying that there's going to be a new law. That law that went out from Mount Sinai that, was a, that created the distinction between the Israelites and the rest of the world is going to be superseded by a new law that comes out from a new mountain, the mountain of Zion, which is where Christ came, which was where Christ died, which was where Christ was raised from the dead. So you had this promise in the Old Testament. Uh, but then it is revealed when we see who Jesus is. Now what's tremendous here is that this distinction, this distinction that God actually created and that God created for a reason is revealed by the coming of Christ to be eliminated. Now, if the only actual distinction that was made by God himself for a purpose, if that distinction is taken away, if that middle wall of hostility is taken away, if, if the coming of Christ reveals the mystery that that is gone, that that is no longer valid, that that division has to be taken away, what do we do with the rest of our fake, false, conflicty, stupid divisions that we cling to? How can any of those stand? How can our distinction in this city between rich and poor, how can we let that stand? God made a distinction between Jew and Gentile for the purpose of revealing Christ. And now that Christ has been revealed, we see that that distinction is gone because the rest of humanity has been brought along with them. What do we do with our distinction between rich and poor? What do we do with our distinction between black and white? What do we do with our distinction between Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives? They're gone. We cannot allow them to stand. They are shown to be eliminated by the coming of Christ. 
All things are united in him. All nations are flowing to Mount Zion. All nations are flowing. Isn't that beautiful? People from every nation, the nations themselves flowing like a river. Like rivers from all over the world flowing to this mountain. What a visual image. And as a result, let them beat their swords into plowshares. Let them beat their spears into pruning hooks. Let them learn war no more. All of our conflicts are destroyed. They are destroyed because we are made partakers. We are made partakers of this one gospel. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And here in a moment, um, we will partake together of the gospel uh, as it is offered to us uh, in this supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are... So grateful uh, for your uh, revelation of who Christ is, for your revealing uh, that you broke down the greatest wall of division of all by breaking down the wall of division between God and man. You broke down the barrier between yourself and us by becoming one of us by suffering as we suffer, by dying as we die, and by being raised from the dead so that we can be raised from the dead with him. Um, and we thank you that as you have revealed that mystery, you have revealed that all other divisions are broken down as well, and you have made us partakers together of one gospel. Uh, we pray that you um, would bind that truth to our hearts that you would give us grace to live in the light uh, of the truth of that gospel, that we are all made one in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.